Okay, good morning everyone. It is wonderful to be with you today. Uh, my apologies to those of you who had to wait quite a bit this morning. It was a bit of a chaotic morning with all sorts of things going wrong. But here we are, and uh, worshiping the Lord together, and what a wonderful time it has been already. Thank you to the worship team. Um, some, some wonderful, wonderful truths we've sung together this morning, and uh, now we get to spend some time in God's Word together, and it is my privilege and joy to preach God's Word for you. We are currently in a mini-series on sharing the gospel, on sharing the gospel. And by the gospel, we mean the good news of Jesus Christ and how it is that we sinners can be saved from the punishment our sins deserve and can be fully reconciled to God for eternity because of what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, death, and, resurrect and resurrection. That is the gospel, the good news. And we want to be equipped to share that far and wide with everyone who does not yet know and follow Jesus. And we want to be equipped in that because God has commanded us to share the gospel with those who are not Christians. Indeed, to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. To take the gospel to every corner of this world. And to call people to put their faith in Jesus and follow him. And what exactly is this message that we need to share? Well, in this series, we've been working through an outline, basic outline, um, that uh, is one helpful way to remember some of the key things we want to cover. And that outline is this. It is God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. And in the last two weeks, we've covered these, the first three, God, man, and Christ. And here is a summary of what we've said is important to communicate with each of these points. First of all, God. God is the creator of all, which establishes him as the absolute authority over every one of us. And one to whom we should be deeply thankful as the giver and sustainer of life and the giver of absolutely every good gift that we enjoy. Secondly, man. Man is rightly under the wrath of God because we have rebelled against him. He created us good and he has given us so, so much. But we have not given him the thanks we should or honored him as God, and instead have rejected him, suppressing the truth about him in unrighteousness, pushing him away, and choosing to live our life more focused on his gifts and ignoring the giver himself. And we saw then that it would be fair, it would have been fair, if this is where the story ended, if this is where the story ended, it would have been fair for us to be under God's wrath and to, be, to face his judgment because we have rebelled against him. We have spat in his face. We have rejected him. And that punishment would be fitting and right. But, amazingly, third... Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Our God, who we rebelled against, made a rescue plan for us. He made a plan to save us, and he did so at great cost to himself. God the Father gave his only Son. God the Son gave himself. He entered into his creation, became man, and died for us. 
And how is it that God saves sinners through Jesus' death on the cross? He does so through an amazing exchange. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect a life of perfect righteousness, perfectly pleasing to God. But on the cross, God punished him as if he were guilty of our sins so that our sins could be paid for and he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfectly righteous, perfectly God-honoring life. That's the exchange. Jesus takes our punishment and we receive his reward. In our sin, we were enemies of God, deserving of his wrath. But because of Jesus, we can be fully and completely reconciled to God forever. And we saw that reconciliation speaks of more than just being saved from having to receive the punishment we deserve, as amazing as that is. We saw that reconciliation speaks of more than just the absence of conflict between, between us and God. Amazingly, reconciliation speaks of relationship, familial relationship, where the God of the universe adopts us sinners as his children and we become his heirs. And we spend eternity in relationship, close relationship with him. We go from banished rebels to adopted children enjoying the presence of the God of the universe forever. That's what God has made possible. That's what God has made available to us in Jesus Christ. That's the message we proclaim. That is the gospel, the good news that we share. But how can somebody make it theirs? How can they go from having heard it to now actually responding to it and becoming a Christian. Well, that's our fourth point, response, response. We're going to start by looking at John 3, verses 16 to 19. John 3, verses 16 to 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. There's two possible responses to Jesus. Embrace him. As God and Savior, believe. Believe and be saved. Receive eternal life. Or, do not believe and be condemned. It's no middle ground. And it all hinges on what we do with Jesus. Do we believe in Him or do we not? Strikingly here in this passage too, those who do not believe love the darkness rather than the light. Those who do not believe love the darkness rather than the light. Remember when we spoke about Romans 1 and how mankind knows the truth about God from creation. How God has made it clear to us that he is real and he is good and he's worthy of worship 
through his creation. But mankind suppresses that truth because we don't want to submit to it. Because we're happy being our own kings. We're happy having our lives revolve around ourselves and our own preferences and our own desires. We don't want to acknowledge a God and king that we need to submit to and live for. Sounds very similar here, doesn't it? There are some who continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hear about Jesus. They hear why he came. They hear what he accomplished. No, thank you. I love the darkness. I want to stay here in the darkness. I'm going to push away the light. See, friends, whether people believe or don't believe is a moral <laughs> issue far more than we often see it as, as being so, right? Sometimes the way people put it is, nah, it's just not, I just need more evidence, I just need more proof. I wish I could see it like you do, but I just don't believe. But what does the scripture tell us is happening on a heart level? On a heart level, I reject the light because I love the darkness. Those are the two possible responses. Embrace Jesus in faith and be saved. Or continue to snub God in preference of your sin. And be condemned. And be condemned. Let's think though, what is belief? What is faith? Let's look at that a little bit closer. In Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now this verse tells us very, very clearly to be saved by faith is not to be saved by works. Faith is not a work. Okay? Our salvation is undeserved. It is purely God's grace. Meaning, right? Unmerited, undeserved. It is a gift. It's not wages. It's not something we've earned. It is a gift. The Protestant Reformation emphasized salvation by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. Faith alone. No works added. All you do is trust Jesus and what he's accomplished for you. All you do is put your confidence in him and what he's accomplished on the cross. Grace alone. It is all unmerited. It is all undeserved. In Christ alone. Right? Jesus paid it all. Absolutely nothing else is needed. Absolutely nothing else is needed. And there is no other way. This is the only way. This is the way God has provided. And it is the only way. In university I read, um, read some missionary stories of missionaries working in the Philippine Islands. And uh, there was a story about a missionary who had been working with the Palawano people in a very remote, uh, in one of the very remote Filipino islands. And um, the story basically goes that there was an elderly man in this tribe that this missionary uh, worked with for, for years, trying to help him understand the gospel. See, friends, the reality is that every other religion on earth Every other religion on earth has some approach to us making ourselves worthy of salvation through certain things that we do. Every other religion on earth. 
It is hardwired into us. If you look closely, you might recognize how hardwired it might even be in your own life. Right? And so this missionary kept uh, realizing that this man's tendency was to put his confidence in things like, I'm coming to church every Sunday. I'm reading my Bible every day. I haven't got drunk now in a long time. Why should God let you into heaven? These were the sorts of reasons he would, he would, he would give as an answer to that question. And then this missionary went away for a few years and came back to visit after a long time away. He speaks of how this this man now was, was elderly and could hardly see and spent most of his time in his hut. And he went up took the hike to go see this man in this hut trying to help him understand the gospel. And he says to the man in the song, he says, Grandfather, if you were to die tomorrow and you were to stand before God and God was to say to you, why should I let you into my presence? What will you tell him? He says, God, you see your son there seated at your right hand. He died for me. He looks at the missionary and he says, won't you let me in because of him? It's so simple, but it is so powerful and so profound. Jesus has paid it all. And that's what faith does. Faith says, this is what I'm holding on to. I have no argument. I have no other plea. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. And he has paid it all. <sighs> Hallelujah. Oh, Sinatra, right? So Kenyang, oh, Jehovah, right? He's made the way. He's made the way. He, he's the champion. He has conquered. He has made it possible. He has made it possible. Nobody else. Only Jesus. Friends, that's where our full confidence is be. And full means full. Right? 100%. Jesus has done it all. He's done it all. Now, that said, true saving faith is always accompanied by good works. True saving faith is always accompanied by obedience to God. It always goes hand in hand with repentance. Repentance, which is turning away from sin and turning to God in obedience. During his life on earth, Jesus often had large crowds following him. Some coming to him for his miracles, others fascinated by his teaching, or even just wanting to get a glimpse, maybe, of some of his miracles. Jesus made very sure that he clarified to these crowds that there's a big difference between being interested in him and truly belonging to him. A good piece of advice when it comes to signing any agreement you might sign out there is to first read the fine print, right? Because 
sometimes there's a good reason that they've put it in fine print. Because they're hoping you won't read it. If there's some reason maybe you shouldn't buy this car, it's probably written there in the fine print. Okay? But you know what Jesus' practice was? Jesus' practice was to take the fine print, to take all the things that might make you say, ah, never mind, and to put it in bold. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, come, become a believer, and then after a few months, he's like, by the way, I expect obedience in every area of your life. I snuck that one in there, right? No. These crowds are following him, and Jesus stops him and says, okay, all right, <laughs> let's be clear here. Let's be clear here. Luke 14 Verse 25 and following says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Fine print in bold. Flashing lights. Now obviously here, this is comparative language. We're commanded by God himself to honor our parents and to love our wives, right? So when he's speaking of hate, it's comparative language. Compared to our love and commitment and devotion to Jesus, it must be as if we hate our family members. So great is, is, is our devotion to Jesus, our commitment to Jesus, our prioritizing of Jesus, our preferencing Jesus. And yes, it must also be as if we hate ourselves compared to our love and devotion to Jesus. He must be our number one priority. Our lives must revolve around Him. True faith values Jesus above anything and everything else. You want to be a Christian? Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of you. And he want, he's just not trying to trick us into it. He wants us to make a very informed decision. He wants us to count the cost. He wants us to carefully weigh this decision before we make it. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, ah, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls us to count the cost. He gives us a couple of illustrations, right? Before you start a building project, before you lay the foundation, make sure you have enough money to finish it. That half-finished building just sitting there is not going to benefit anybody. Make sure you have the money first, you have what it takes, then commit. And if you're a king with an army, don't just go declare war on some other king until you know you can actually win the battle. 
You're going to put yourself in a lot of trouble if half, if, if the two armies are coming to meet each other and now suddenly you're running with the white flag saying, sorry, sorry, just kidding. Likewise, Jesus urges, right? Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whatever it is that I may ask of you, you need to be willing to give it to me. Everything. Think about that. Think about it carefully. One pastor put it this way. He said, salvation is free, right? We talked, talked about how it's by grace. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. It's free. But it will cost you everything. Okay? Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Weigh it up. Realize ahead of time what Jesus is calling you to. Make an informed decision. My friends, one reason Jesus can be this forthright is because He knows. He knows that following Him is well worth it. Right? He doesn't have to duck and dive and, and put the stuff in the fine print and try and hide it away. He's, he's quite happy to boldly say, this is what it will cost. But it is well worth it. It is well worth it. And we should be similarly unashamed when we call people to respond to Jesus. Forthright, honest, and unashamed. The reality is, right, becoming a Christian, many of us can speak to this. Becoming a Christian lost us friends. Becoming a Christian made things awkward and weird with some of our family members. Becoming a Christian meant I didn't listen to some of my favorite songs anymore. Becoming a Christian meant that I no longer had these secret indulgences that used to bring me some level of pleasure. Also guilt and the feeling of dirtiness and so on and so forth. But they were things in which I delighted, right? And now I'm turning away from that. Becoming a Christian meant signing on to a lifetime of fighting sinful desires. Becoming a Christian means, it means no more just going with the flow. I'm, I'm, I'm taking up my cross. I'm following Jesus. I'm fighting against my flesh and I'm pursuing holiness. In all cases, right? Becoming a Christian means waking up every day and living all of life for Jesus and not yourself. There is sacrifice involved. And it is well worth it. It is well worth it. True saving faith recognizes, recognizes the sinfulness of sin. Recognizes the sinfulness of not honoring God. And it doesn't want to sin doesn't want to sin. True saving faith turns away from sin. True saving faith recognizes the glory and goodness and graciousness of God and wants to honor Him. True saving faith embraces the incredible gift of Christ and wants to honor Him. And it gladly turns from living for self or living for any other thing, any other pleasure, any other pursuit. 
And it gladly chooses day in and day out to live for God. Right? So, we must repent and believe. In summary, right? We must repent and believe. How do we respond to Jesus? We turn away from our sin. We turn to Him and follow Him. Believing and trusting and having full confidence that our sins are forgiven and have been, and sorry, and we have been saved 100% because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Now, actually, before I go on, I grabbed this because I was just thinking about this as we were singing it this morning. It was just good stuff, man. You read, read, read the words of before the throne. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, right? And he's telling, he's telling you true things, right? Because you are a sinner. He doesn't have to make stuff up. Just keeps reminding you, accusing you. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him. His perfect righteousness. And to view him as if he's me. And then because of that, I'm pardoned. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness. <coughs> the great, unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. One with him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Christ, my Savior, and my God. Amen? Amen. Now, that's the message. Now, here's some thoughts on evangelism. Here's some thoughts on evangelism with, with this from this particular section. Right, we need to emphasize that salvation is freely and immediately available to all who put their trust in Christ. It's freely and immediately available to all who put their trust in Christ. Remember the thief on the cross? Turns to Jesus, asks Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, I tell you today, right? Uh, well, okay. I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly, but, right? <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll see you in paradise or something like that. I'm uh, sorry, I should have written it down. But here's the point, right? That guy hanging on the cross, he has no opportunity to get baptized. He has no opportunity to take communion. He has no opportunity to put any money in the offering plate. He has no opportunity to go to church. He has no opportunity to do anything. He puts his trust in Jesus and Jesus tells him in the moment, you're saved, right? You're saved. Salvation is freely and immediately available to all who put their trust in Christ. It is a gift of God's grace. Secondly, be unashamed like Jesus to put the fine print in bold. Okay? We're not trying to trick anybody into anything. We're not trying to, uh, to, 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 to sneak, uh, sneak, sneak along the fact that Christianity requires sacrifice. That Jesus asks everything of us. We're unashamed of it. We must be unashamed of it. We must be honest and forthright. And again, right? Part of why we can be unashamed of this 
is because we know that Jesus is well worth it. There's nothing we have to tiptoe about. Nothing we have to tiptoe around. Allow people time to properly count the cost, okay? Allow people time to properly count the cost. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you don't need to push them. Okay, like, you know, like the clock's ticking, we, you know, I've got to leave in five minutes. Can we, you know, say the sinner's prayer right now, right? Allow people time to properly count the cost and make sure that they are making an informed decision that they've carefully weighed up and thought through thoroughly. However, we also need to urge people to make a decision. Urge people to make a decision. Jesus urges us to count the costs. We saw that in Luke 14. But we also see passages like this in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, right? There are many sacrifices to be made. There's a lot of reasons you might come up with for why, you know, I don't know if now is quite the time for, for me to follow Jesus. Next year, though, I'm aiming for it next year. There are sacrifices to be made, but you need to choose, prioritize Jesus and to follow him. You need to realize that you can't put it off. Again, it's a big decision, but it is a decision well worth it. It's a decision well worth it. So what do we do if someone wants to receive Christ as Savior? Actually, before I, I, I go on to that, let me just say this. I think it's very possible that there are several of you, several of you who might be in this category I just described, right? If I say to you, do you, do you, do you believe in Jesus? You would have no problem saying, well, I believe he's the Son of God and I believe he died on the cross to save us from our sins. But then it's like, okay, well, are you following him? Is your life revolving around him? Are you, are you living for him? Now again, friends, this is very important. We're not talking about doing this perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. The Apostle Paul didn't do it perfectly. Okay? It's not, it's, and it's not about works. It's not about a scorecard. It's not about how well you do it. It's about a change of heart and orientation. Right? You're no longer living for yourself. You're living for Jesus. You're no longer living for anything else. You're living for Jesus. Imperfectly, but you're living for Jesus. So now, the question would be, is that you? Are you living for Jesus? And my guess is that there's at least some of you who can't say that you've made that commitment. And you've probably told yourself, but it's, I'm going to soon. I'm going to do it soon. And you think you're in a good space because you do believe. You know what's a scary thing? In the book of James, James tells us, faith without works is dead. The demons believe and they tremble. The demons know who Jesus is. What are you going to do with Jesus, though? Are you just going to know who he is, or are you going to bow to him and follow him? 
people. If you want him to be your saviour, he must also be your Lord, your God, your King. Okay, if someone wants to receive Christ as saviour, what do we do? We point them to prayer. Okay, How do they actually become a Christian? They talk to God about it. They confess their sin to God. They thank Him for Jesus' death on the cross. They ask Him to forgive them and save them. They ask God to forgive them and save them. Right? Now, I'm, I prefer not to give people the exact words to say. Some of you might have even become, become a Christian praying the exact words after someone else. Follow after me. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And that's okay. Like, I'm, I'm not going to outright say that that's, that's wrong. And, and, and in fact, I, I know with confidence many people have prayed, uh, prayed a prayer of saving faith exactly like that. But my preference is just to give people general guidelines so that the words are their own words. It can be a little bit messy. It can be a little bit awkward. It's fine. God knows. God knows. But we point them to God in prayer. Then, now they've now prayed this prayer. What now? Well, you believe the best. You believe that it is sincere. It is from the heart. You rejoice with them. But I'd encourage you also to explain to them, explain to them still that the authenticity of their faith will be revealed with time by a life of repentance and following Christ. Okay? I want to be very careful not to, not to say to somebody, okay, now, now that you've prayed that prayer, don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not a Christian. You might have been getting drunk every night for the last month, but don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not a Christian. You might be cheating on your wife. You might be stealing money from work. But don't let anybody ever tell you you're not a Christian. The Bible doesn't support that, right? What the Bible supports is that, again, true faith is going to be seen in the way we live. Okay? It's going to be seen in the way we live. Now, we don't want to be cynical, and we definitely don't want to lead people towards trusting in their performance for, their, for, for, for salvation, right? What saves them is Jesus. What saves them is Jesus. But true saving faith will be seen in whether they live for Jesus or whether they continue to willfully continue in their sin. Very importantly, right? Call the person to be baptized in a Bible teaching church. And call them to become a member of that church. Okay? Now, let me explain this, right? Being a Christian is not a secret. It's not just something between me and Jesus. There's a reason that, that a number of passages in our New Testament call us to confess with our mouth. Right? If somebody's saved, they confess with their mouth. They're unashamed of Jesus. Jesus talks about not being ashamed of those who are not ashamed of him. I belong to Jesus. Jesus has saved me. My life has lived for him. Baptism is an opportunity to make your faith public. Okay? To stand in front of others and say, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my King. We must be unashamed to do that. We must go public. Another reason baptism is, is important is because part of God's design with this is that you, your faith gets affirmed by a local church and by recognized leaders in that local church. Right? What, is, what, do, what do we see in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount? There will be people, there will be people who stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There are people who think they are Christians who are not. 
This is not something that you just want to uh, be, you know, have be something that you figure out and you discern on your own. Okay? You want to have a local church. You want to have recognized leaders who know the Bible well. Be able to hear your confession of faith, hear from you what you believe, and be able to say, yes, you do understand the gospel. And that is a credible profession of faith. And based on that credible profession of faith, we will baptize you. And you're publicly declaring, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my King. And this church is publicly declaring, we believe you are indeed a Christian. We believe you have good reason to be confident that you have been saved. Okay. Now what about the church membership piece? The church membership piece. Well, one important piece of this is discipleship. Discipleship. Every Christian must go on to grow, to become more and more like Jesus. Every Christian must go on to obey all that Jesus has commanded, to pursue that with our lives. And what is the context God has given us, the primary context God has given us for that to happen? It's the local church. Part of how you learn and grow is through what's happening right now, through the preaching of God's Word, through fellowship, the conversations you have that are centered on God's Word with other brothers and sisters after the service and throughout the week. You need to be a part of a local church if you're going to grow. You need to be a part of the local church if, if you're going to be helped not to drift away. You need to be a part of a local church where shepherds are willing to pick up their uh, metaphorical crook and chase after the wolves that are trying to tell you lies and lead you astray. I'm going to protect you and bring you in. No, 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 no. No more of that Bible study with that, with that Mormon. Come or if, I, or if you're going to have a Bible study with that Mormon, I'm going to come, I'm going to sit next to you, and we're going to show them, we're going to show them who Jesus really is in the pages of Scripture. Okay, you're not just out there, a lone sheep, just waiting to be devoured by wolves. You need the church, okay? You call people to be a part of the church. And now here's another piece too, right? How does church discipline fit into all of this? Okay? Church discipline is basically, it goes hand in hand with baptism, right? Baptism is basically saying, we affirm, we are confident, you understand the gospel, and your faith is real. It's authentic, it's genuine. Okay? Now, what happens with church discipline is the first few steps is just ordinary Christianity. Ordinary Christianity that says, hey, my friend, um, you're starting to slip into something there that, that, is, that is sinful or that's unhelpful to your walk with the Lord. Let me call you back. Okay? And for all of us, we should have many experiences of conversations like that. And that's as far as it goes because... I hear the call back, and I come back. Ah, thanks. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't thinking straight there. Right? You remind me of what's true. You remind me of what God calls me to. But then, right, if somebody willfully continues on in their sin, and multiple people keep trying to call them back, and they remain resolutely on their path, no, I am going to marry this non-Christian. No, I am going to continue uh, to, to do this, this thing as a side hustle that is illegal. It's not hurting anybody. Leave me be. Right? I am going to continue to cheat on my wife. I love this lady. She loves me. God wants me to be happy, right? Whatever it may be, resolutely continuing in rebellion against God, then the church is there to say, we 
have no reason for confidence that you're a Christian, and therefore we're going to remove you from the membership of the church because we don't want you to think that you're saved and you're fine with God when there's no reason for you to think that you are. Okay? Guys, we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Okay? So we don't want to just leave ourselves. We don't want to be alone in this. God's given us the church, and it's an important piece of how this all works. Okay? All right. We'll uh, talk in our GCs. If you've got any questions, then certainly let me know. Let, let other leaders in the church know. Let's keep talking. But let's remember, though, okay? We exist. A big part of why we exist as a church is because people need to know Jesus. And it's our responsibility. We have been entrusted with the gospel. We are ambassadors for God. And, that, and, and those, are, those aren't my words. Those are straight out of 2 Corinthians 5. We need to be taking this truth to people and imploring people. Again, words straight out of 2 Corinthians 5. Be reconciled to God. He's made a way for you to be reconciled to Him. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's good news. It's good news. Let's share it. Amen.